February 6th, 1812. Imagine my delight when I realized that this was the 210th anniversary of a very important event in Christian history. Adoniram Judson was ordained, becoming America's first foreign missionary. He and his wife, Anne, had been married for one day. Within two weeks, they were on a ship headed for Asia. 17 months later, after a short stay in India, Adoniram and Anne anchored in Burma, where they would labor for the rest of their lives to bring the gospel to the Burmese people. Two things are undeniable as you read the account. The fruit of their work was extraordinary, and the suffering they endured was enormous. Over the next four decades, though Anne would not live to see it, the work resulted in a complete translation of the scriptures in the Burmese language. Nearly 100 Bible-believing churches, and more than 8,000 followers of Jesus. The suffering, though, that gave birth to that little Christian movement was staggering. And here's but a handful of examples. Adoniram and Anne's first child died at birth while on the ship from India to Burma. Most of us would have quit at that point, and nobody would have thought the less of us. But they continued on. Their second child was a baby boy named Roger. I've spoken about him before. He lived for about six months and then died from a tropical fever. They suffered bouts of cholera, malaria, and dysentery. And they labored for six years before they baptized their first convert. Then in 1824, the British declared war on Burma. And all the foreigners in the country were suspected to be spies. So they threw Adoniram in a vermin-infested prison. They tortured him by hanging him by his feet at night. And he nearly starved to death. While he was in prison, Anne gave birth to their third child, little Maria. Anne died 11 months after Adoniram was released from prison. And two-year-old Maria died shortly after her mother. Adoniram made it back to America one time for a furlough, and during that voyage, his second wife, Sarah, died on board the ship. So I think, how do you persevere under conditions like that? And it begs the question, what motivated this man? And therein lies the connection with this morning's text. Evan Burns, who many of us know, answered that question in his book on the spiritual life of Adoniram. According to Evan, Adoniram made a practice of, write, of writing rules of life, as he called them. They were like daily resolutions. And here's Adoniram's one rule that summarized all his others. Resolved to make the desire to please Christ the grand motive of all my actions. That desire was not merely a personal motive for Adoniram. He believed it should be the motive for everyone in ministry. Listen to his address to the Boardman Missionary Society 
Society in 1846. If any of you enter gospel ministry in this land or in other lands, let not your object be so much to do your duty or to save souls, though these should have a place in your motives, but rather to please the Lord Jesus. Let this be your ruling motive in all that you do. We could spend all morning unpacking that, but let me just say this. That same motive, the desire to please the Lord, was why Paul and Timothy asked God to fill the Colossians. It is why they never ceased to pray and asking that God would fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. We'll come back to that. First, though, let's recap last week's message. Paul and Timothy followed their prayer report of thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8 with a prayer report of petition in verses 9 through 14. The petition is six verses long but contains only one request. At first read, it feels a little tangled, but when we break it down, it's rather simple. There is one petition, one purpose, and four participles. Those are the ING words we learned about last week. The structure might be easier if we visualize it by highlighting the text. Verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking. Now here is Paul and Timothy's one request. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. What Paul and Timothy asked God on behalf of these new believers was that he would saturate them or supply them to the point of being under the influence of the knowledge of his will. This knowledge was not cold speculation, as Calvin would say. It was not merely facts about God or lists of his commands. This knowledge of God's will was relational and experiential. It was the knowledge of what pleased him. It is what God desired and what he required of the Colossians. More simply, Paul and Timothy never stopped praying that these believers might know, truly know the heart of their God. Then Paul and Timothy qualified their request with these very important words, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, this knowledge of God properly understood and applied to their lives was a thing imparted by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. It was a spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10. So as, and there's the connector between the single petition and the purpose for the petition, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's what this message is about, a walk that's worthy of King Jesus and fully pleasing to him. After stating the purpose for the petition, Paul and Timothy briefly list the characteristics or marks of the kind of life that pleases God. 
Depending on your translation, you'll recognize the marks by their ing endings. Here they are. A life fully pleasing to God is one, a life that's bearing fruit. Two, a life that's increasing in the knowledge of God. Three, it's a life that's being strengthened by God. And four, it is a life that's giving thanks to God. This morning, we're going to focus on the purpose of the petition. The next week, Pastor Josh will walk us through those four marks. Before I begin, though, let me say a word. I read through my sermon about maybe 15, 20 minutes before the service started, and two things came to mind. First, this is, this is heavy, and there is a danger that it could come across as a do, do, do sermon. And that concerns me because I would not want to put anyone under the guilt of needing to do more. Or as my brother Ken says, pedal faster. That's not what this sermon is about. You see, every time I mention the word knowledge, what should really go in there is a full explanation of what Paul and Timothy just told us about. We are speaking about the knowledge of God applied to the heart by the gospel and the spirit that changes the heart it is the truth of the word. It is the gospel. And the spirit imparts to us a change. Our hearts are transformed by the power of the gospel. And that's how it flows. That's how the works flow. So when I speak of good works, please don't think that I'm saying go out and do something today. What I'm trying to say is that you need to press the gospel into your life, and then the change that happens in your heart will inevitably overflow in a life that's fully pleasing to God. So, enough of that. Let's look now at the purpose of this petition. Verse 10. Paul and Timothy's aim, their reason for asking God to fill the Colossians was so that their walk would be worthy of and pleasing to the Lord. To get our brains wrapped around those words, let's ask three questions of this morning's text. One, what does it mean to walk? What is the analogy that Paul and Timothy are using here? Two, what does it mean for our walk to be in a manner worthy of of the Lord. And three, what does it mean for our walk to be fully pleasing to him? This topic is huge. Question one, what do Paul and Timothy mean by walk? Well, this is a word picture. And this image of walking on a path is an everyday Jewish metaphor. We find it throughout the Bible, especially in Psalms and Proverbs. It's used in many cultures, and we even use it in our own. Our walk is the course of our daily life. It is the way we live. It is how we behave or how we conduct ourselves every day. Psalm 1 is well known for its use of this picture. Blessed is the man who walks 
not in the counsel of the wicked. The image is that of a godly man whose path in life, whose daily behavior is on a decidedly different course than that of the wicked man. The blessed man is the one who lives according to Proverbs 4.14. He does not enter the path of the wicked, and he does not walk in the way of evil. For those of us using the English Standard Version, 1 Corinthians 3.3 might be helpful in connecting this idea of behavior with the analogy of walking. You are still of the flesh, Paul writes to this troubled church in Corinth. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? The word behaving there is the same Greek word as in our passage. It's literally walking. Are you not walking only in a human manner? Those of you using the King James Version or the New American Standard Bible will actually see the literal, or, literal word walk or walking instead of behaving. The meaning, though, is identical. We use the walk in a similar, we use walk, the idea of a walk, in similar way in that old saying, before you judge a man, walk a mile in his shoes. And what we mean is that before you condemn someone, try to understand what that person has experienced during the course of their life so you can understand how he thinks and, way, and why he may have behaved the way he did. This, this analogy couldn't have been more clear to the Colossian readers. Their walk was the way they lived. It was their everyday conduct. Well, since this is all about behavior now... Take note of the order of this petition and the purpose. The order of the petition and the purpose. Paul and Timothy prayed for the right kind of knowledge. And I'll just remind you, we're speaking of the right kind of knowledge, which is the word of the truth, the gospel. So they prayed for the right kind of knowledge, and then they introduce the desired behavior. That's the order we see elsewhere in Scripture. Here's the principle. Right knowledge leads to right behavior, like a good root leads to good fruit. That's why Paul and Timothy used 131 words for this one petition. They weren't wasting space. They wanted to clarify the kind of knowledge they were praying for because the result of that kind of knowledge would inevitably result in right behavior. Because you see, the gospel changes hearts. You see the same logical order in Romans where Paul tells them that their minds needed to be renewed in order that their behavior might be changed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. We also see it in Paul's prayer report to the believers in Philippi. It is my prayer, he wrote to them, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. What's the result? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Right knowledge would lead to 
pure and blameless behavior. The Puritan George Swinnick said it better than I ever could. Right knowledge, though it begin at the head, doth not end there, but falls down upon the heart to affect it and floweth out in the life in order to order it and regulate it. Right knowledge leads to right behavior. What then is right behavior? That's question two. What does it mean for our walk to be in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, to borrow language from Jonathan Edwards, a walk worthy of Christ is a way of life that is in some measure answerable to him. What he means by answerable is that our life must be suitable or fitting or commensurate in some measure with Christ. In other words, the life lived by the believer is to be fitting with what Christ has done for us and his relationship with us. And that would yield an answer to our question along these lines. A life lived worthy of Christ is a life that is holy and blameless before him. Well, that's as good as far as it goes, but I think it might miss something of the bigger picture of the worthiness of Christ. Because here's what else we find in the scriptures about the kind of walk that is worthy of our Lord Jesus. We know that the way of life that's worthy of him means that we must love him above all else. That includes loving him more than our own family. That goes beyond mere actions and external moral behavior, and it gets right to the heart. It targets what we value most. Whoever loves father and mother more than me, Jesus said, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We also know that the way of life that's worthy of Christ means taking up our cross and following him. Following Christ means that we must die. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, Jesus said. Here's John Stott's classic take on what that means. To take up our cross, therefore, and follow Jesus is to put oneself into the position of a condemned man on his way to his execution. For if we are following Jesus with a cross on our shoulder, there's only one place to which we are going, the place of crucifixion. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Our cross then is not an irritable husband or a cantankerous wife. It is instead the symbol of death to the self. We also know from Hebrews chapter 3, and I know that many of you are studying this passage, we know that Jesus' worth is, is infinitely more glorious and worth more glory than the prophet Moses. It occurred to me as I thought of that passage that if the worth of Christ 
was infinite, which it clearly is. And what does that tell us about the manner of life that is worthy of him? Yes, he is worth treasuring more than my family. And yes, he's of more worth than my life. But Christ is infinitely worthy. And thus the most comprehensive answer to our question of a life lived in a manner worthy of him, I believe, is the scene around the throne in Revelation chapter 5. The living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." What a humbling vision of worship. Christ, worthy of all. Our life, our death, all of our affections, all our daily actions, and all in a manner, in a manner answerable in some measure, to use Edward's language, answerable to the lamb who was slain, the one who is infinitely worthy and worthy of our all. That's what I think it means for our walk to be in a manner worthy of the Lord. All things are from him and through him and therefore to him. Question number three. There's a lot of overlap here. What does it mean for our walk to be fully pleasing to the Lord? Paul and Timothy add that little phrase to the mix, fully pleasing to the Lord. We're still in verse 10. Adoniram Judson got this right. Pleasing the Lord should be the chief aim of Christians. We don't often speak that way in our circles. I think I know why, but yes, our Father is pleased by what His children do. There are so many examples in the Word of God. Let me give you a few. God is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to save souls. It pleased God, wrote Paul, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, 1 Corinthians 1. God is pleased by our growth in holiness, that is our sanctification. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4. We know that God is pleased when we do his commands. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, 1 John 3. We know that God is pleased by our good works. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Children, 
We know that God is pleased when you obey your parents. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord, Colossians 3. And yes, God is pleased by our giving. He calls our giving and our helping of people in need a fragrant offering, a a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I am well supplied, wrote Paul to the Philippians, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And God is pleased when we praise his holy name and give him thanks. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. Psalm 69. And that list could go on. So then, the the purpose Paul and Timothy had in mind as they prayed for God to fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will was that their way of life their conduct would be fit for the worthiness of their master and thus be fully pleasing to him. As we close, let me return to Adoniram Judson's rule of life. He said he was resolved to make the desire to please Christ the grand motive of all his actions. I wonder about us. How many in this gathering this morning have a motivation problem? Or to put it better, how many of us have a heart problem? Some of you feel little or no desire at all to please Christ. And Adoniram's spiritual intensity is totally foreign to your experience. You may have some desire, but it's weak. The pull of this world and all the shiny objects that it offers is choking out your holy desires. I want you to know that I pray for you daily. I pray that God would bring spiritual renewal to your hearts. I pray every day that this gathering would be full of white, hot lovers of King Jesus. So to that end, let me offer you four directions to stimulate your spiritual appetites, because that's what needs to happen. If we are to desire to please Christ as the grand motive of all of our actions, that's what we need to have happen. We need strong appetites. We need to hunger and thirst. These four directions come as you probably would have guessed, directly from Jonathan Edwards. They're from a sermon on the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, and he's preaching on these words. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And here's how he introduced the directions. And this is dense, and I will... Try to adjust the old bumpy language as best I can. Let me exhort you to the utmost to promote and indulge 
spiritual and gracious appetites. We don't talk that way anymore, do we? Let me repeat and apply to you that invitation of Christ that we have in the text. Eat, oh friends, drink, drink abundantly. We in Christ's place plead with you that are followers of Christ to do that. By all means, endeavor to raise and obtain satisfaction for your holy inclinations. Delight yourselves in the Lord. Well, one would think that you shouldn't need urging to indulge your appetites and to enjoy your pleasures. Carnal men, by all the arguments that can be used, can scarce be restrained from indulging their carnal appetites. Tis a shame that saints should need a great many arguments to move them to promote their spiritual appetites. Be exhorted particularly to promote a thirsting desire after Jesus and after that glorious feast of spiritual good things that is provided in him. Delight yourselves in him. Rejoice in him with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Direction number one. Endeavor to increase spiritual appetites by meditating on spiritual objects. You see, we restrain lustful appetites by casting away and avoiding thoughts about them. If we give way to our thoughts concerning those things, it tends to increase lustful desires after them. But tis our duty to be much in meditation on the objects of our spiritual desire. We should be often thinking upon the glory and grace of God, the excellency and wonderful love of Christ, the beauty of holiness. That's Edward's first instruction. Strive to increase your spiritual appetites by meditating on spiritual things. It is an exhortation to do what Paul and Timothy write later in the letter to the Colossians. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Direction number two. Endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. You see, we're to avoid being in the way of temptation with respect to our carnal appetites. But we ought to take all opportunities to lay ourselves in the way of enticement with respect to our gracious inclinations. Here's what he's saying. If we're supposed to flee from situations in which we might be tempted to sin, then we should do the exact opposite and tempt ourselves with our spiritual appetites, put ourselves in situations that will entice us to holy and gracious things. Back to Edwards. Thus, you should be often with God in prayer, and then you will, you will be in the way of having your heart drawn forth to him 
We ought to be frequent in reading and constant in hearing the word. And particularly to this end, we ought carefully and with the utmost seriousness and consideration attend the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This was appointed for that end, to draw forth the longings of our souls to Jesus Christ. Here we are the glorious objects of spiritual desire by visible signs represented to our view. We have Christ evidently set forth crucified. We have that spiritual meat and drink represented and offered to excite our hunger and thirst. Here we have all the spiritual feast represented which God has provided for poor souls. And here we may have hope in some measure to have our longing souls satisfied in this world by the gracious communication of the Spirit of God. That is heavy. That's Edward's second instruction. Put yourself in situations that will stimulate your spiritual appetite. Frequent prayer, soaking in the Word, and participating in the Lord's Supper. Direction number three. Watch. Watch for the first beginnings of the exercise of these inclinations and then promote them. That is, pay attention to the awakening of any holy desire within you. We are to watch the first beginnings of lustful inclinations so we could suppress them. But here we are to do the contrary. Whenever we feel these desires and longings, we should endeavor to intensify them by meditation and prayer. We should express our longings to God. They will increase by being, by being expressed. We should be earnest in our prayers for the things we long for. So there's our third instruction. Pay attention, keep watch. And when a holy desires awaken... Fan the flame by meditation and prayer. Direction number four. Live in the practice of these inclinations. If you long after God and Jesus Christ, then often go to God and Christ and converse with them. If you long to be near God, then draw near to him if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, then take great care to live in the practice of righteousness, to live a more holy and heavenly life. If you long to be more like Christ, then act like him. Walk as he walked. This is the way to have your holy inclinations increased, and hereby they will in some measure be satisfied. And those are our four instructions. The resolve to make the desire to please Christ, the spring and grand motive of all of our actions, is really a matter of spiritual hunger and thirst. It is a matter of a heart that is truly changed by the power of the gospel. Our motivation problem is a spiritual appetite problem. Our desires, brothers and sisters, are weak because our appetite is sickly. 
Therefore, let us strive together to increase our spiritual appetites. Let's meditate on spiritual things. Let's tempt ourselves to grow our spiritual appetites. Let's keep watch and fan the flickering flame of those affections to life. And let us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's my call to you this morning. Make use of these means, brothers and sisters, to awaken and inflame your desire to please Christ as the grand motive of all your actions. Let me pray for you. Father, we acknowledge that our spiritual appetites are weak. So, Father, we want you to intensify them. Father, we need more heart change. We need to have our minds renewed. We need to have the glorious truth of your gospel pressed deep into our hearts so that it flows out in this desire to see you pleased. So, Father, I pray that you would fill us. Fill us at Living Water Church with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding because we want to walk in a manner that is worthy of your Son and fully pleasing to you. We want to bear good fruit. We want to increase in our knowledge of you. We want you to strengthen us with your power. And we want to be filled with thanksgiving. Father, thank you for this prayer. And do that work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.